Hello. Come in. Please come in and have a seat. So I'm looking around the room, and I actually don't recognize 90% of the people here, which is always a good thing. Um, welcome to the Poetry Project. And I'm Simone White. I'm the program director here at the project. Um, I'm glad you're here for the first reading of the Wednesday night series. This year, it is no longer the 50th anniversary. Right? We're not raising any money. Um, some. Um, but it's, it's um, I, I don't, what, how, many year, how many years has it been? A long, like a long time. But, but also, like, I am a little nervous about this season because for the first time in many years, I won't be here in the spring. So this feels kind of like a special fall for me. So I'm really excited that people are um, around and the room is full, and, and that I get to host these two great writers, Anna Mashavakis and Yumna Chalala. So this is um, the start of something good. Um, let me tell you what's happening for the next week or so at the project. Um, on next Wednesday, we don't have a reading on Friday. Normally, there is a reading um, on Friday, every other Friday. Next Wednesday, um, Eileen Miles, Andre Alexis, Nicole George, and Eugene Lim will be here for Dog Right, um, which is partly a book launch for Eileen's new book, Afterglow, which is a dog book. And um, the other three writers who are here have also written new dog books. <laughs> so it's a special dog night at the project. And next Friday, on the 13th, Marwa Asanios and Emma Hedich will be here. So. Please come for some or all of those things. Um, tonight, we will start with Yumna, and we will not take a break. This is kind of like a new thing at the project. We just like don't take a break because people don't smoke anymore. Um, so, right. Okay. Is there enough light? Do can people see? Yumna Chalala is an artist and a writer born in Beirut and based in New York. Her work investigates the relationship between fate and architecture through drawing, video, and performance, prose, and poetry. Her book of poetry, The Paper Camera, is forthcoming from Litmus Press. She's the founding editor of 1111, Journal of Literature and Art, and the recipient of a Joseph Henry Jackson Award. Her writing appears in publications such as Guernica, Baum, Prairie Schooner, Bespoke, Cura, and MIT Journal for Middle Eastern Studies, among others. She's exhibited widely, including in the Performer Biennial 2011, LAF Biennial of 2017, I don't know how to pronounce this, Kunstcenter. <laughs> it's German words. Uh, is it even German? The Drawing Center, Dubai Art Projects, Rotterdam International Film Festival, and Art in General. She's the co-founder of the Mutating Cities Institute and associate professor in the Humanities and Media Studies and Writing Department at Pratt. Quote, fur meaning close to Cyprus, but not quite that, end quote. When I cannot read, it's because the ordinary has suffocated my ability to absorb difference. It happens a lot, not being able to read. And I've come to know this failure as a sign that means ailment. Quote, lovers fighting figuratively, unquote. 
Reading, I want words to find me in a place of not understanding. I know these words, but it is not quite that, or it is a figurative that. Trying to understand somebody else's offerings of words is always a process that involves misunderstanding, misreading, slippages, flat incomprehension that occurs when the words you're hearing can't penetrate their facticity or their objectness. They're being trapped in something they are not. In Yumna's work, I love the sense that I'm about to lose control of the illusion of definiteness that underlies the proposition of mother tongue. The tongues, they are not one. Quote, in the museum of future memories, a certain kind of blue language blooms once a year. Rare and thus possible, sense drawn from the semblance of resembling is blue. Nothing is there but what can't be seen. Reading, I'm interested in being awakened to the frailty of knowledge, the many contingencies upon which every act of writing depends, the unsteadiness of the hand. Please welcome Yumna Chalala to the Poetry Project. Thank you, Poetry Project. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Simone, for that beautiful introduction. I think one of the gifts of this space um, is taking the time to write new introductions for all the people who read here, and I think um, that is not to be taken lightly. It really is a gift to have somebody read your work and introduce you, so thank you. Um, so Anna and I um, might or might not read poetry tonight. <laughs> it is to be determined. Uh, we are going to be poeting. We're going to verbalize, make into verb, poetics as much as possible. Um, so I'm going to begin with um, a work that was uh, written originally to exist um, in the very north of Norway, in the Lofoten Islands. Um, it's a work that I wrote um, with a prompt. And the prompt was, what will happen in these islands um, in 150 years? And a lot of what I've been thinking about and a lot of the visual work I've been making, thank you, um, has been about speculation and how to reinsert speculation into a conversation about the body rather than about finance. <laughs> um, so this was my answer to this prompt. Um, the work, I, I debated, I debated um, whether or not to show you the way the text was actually inserted into the spaces and decided against it, and to just have the language live for itself. Um, but the work was installed throughout um, a specific city in the Lofoten Islands um, as a kind of spatial intervention. Uh, so the project is about um, the color that language will take form in in the future. It's called, How Many Tongues Does It Take to Make a Color? And many people have thought throughout time about the color blue, so here's a few little notes. One from William Gass. Blueness fuddles every tongue like wine. Every article of air might look like cobalt if we got outside ourselves to see it. And I can't speak about the color blue without a little note from Maggie Nelson. <laughs> 
Over the years, I've amassed countless blue stones, blue shards of glass, blue marbles, trampled blue photographs, peeled off sidewalks, pieces of blue rubble from broken buildings, and though I can't where most of though I can't remember where most of them came from, I love them nonetheless. Um, I also this is a small little note from Deleuze and Guitari. We will only escape from the major crises of our era through the articulation of a nascent subjectivity, a constantly mutating socius, an environment in the process of being reinvented. Dear, dear, what color is our future language? In the future, we will only see it as blue. It might be yours or mine. Either way, it will be blue, the color that never was. Long ago, we saw the sea as purple, in other parts, a bright green. Ask anyone in Asia. Blue is new. The sky is a void, and the sea can be orange. In the Museum of Future Memories, a certain kind of blue language blooms once a year. It's like those flowers who wait for the night to fall to grow without a glimpse. I found this fragment glowing bright. On my way to the moon, I fell in love with the sea. Sea tree, sea tree, what do you see? I see the monstrous deep, invasions, sea monsters, sky monsters. Do they make the waves construct the cycles? Will the wind win? The wind that smashes against rocks, dries tendrils, suspends time, smash, smash as we walk between stones, suspended language in a state of elongation, expanding life. If you dry the cod, it can last years, 10 or more. If the world is at the edge of sea and sky, then suspension is vital for survival or play. Play is a form of being. A being is a kind of species. We are species suspended in time and space trying to remember to see language. Here, we cut tongues. Does this mean we remove the language from the fish? What about our own? Maybe our bodies have more to say than our tongues. Invasive species. You remind me I am not from here. The future is the experience of migration or movement. This is a kind of exchange. In the past, we traded reindeer for penguins. Our friendship is nations linked by cartoon animals. If a penguin is a bird, how could it invade our yard? It was done away with. The reindeer still roam. Okra, herring, Fin whale gather in winter. Fish are in constant motion. I watch them on the shark cam online, free, anytime. The fish move fast and fluid in yellow blurs. Does the bright light of the camera agitate them, like a sun making us restless? The water is murky. Do I believe it, the camera? I wait for the lights to flicker above in the sea, on the horizons, the boat. What happens? Sea trees live. Wolf fish indicate the health of bottom dwellers, such as cod. If the cod is at the bottom and brought up to dry, then what is our dividing line? 
Is the horizon line our dividing line? In the red and black lists, species below and above do not belong, they invade. If blue is the newest color, what is the oldest? We rub sand, coral, soil. We try and remember red. The fish camera is frozen. All I see are black circles for eyes, seeing me back. The chalk vertebrae take longer to grow when the water contains more acid. Is chalk outside our color spectrum like sky? We took a long time to name it blue. Before, it was simply space, free of the weightiness of color. Without shrimp, there are no fish. Without fish, there is no us. I remember the first blue. It was ink, poems in a language that is no longer mine. Once true, now wild. It takes a week to remove the tentacles and spikes from sea urchins. I am left with a pink sphere dotted with bright white lines. Genetic structure appears to be strongly influenced by ocean current patterns. We study the shrimp and then we eat it. Once we amass language, it does not become whole, but it retains its fragments. Its natural desire is to mutate. When language blooms, it's dispersed, happy, thriving. The minds made the color. It was not found. We found it. It takes 12,000 shellfish to make 1.4 grams of Tyrian purple. How many tongues does it take to make a color? How many seas until we see? Does color only happen as a kind of exchange? Collectively, is it like language? Is there no private color? If I hold the rock, does its rockness matter more than its color? To be is not to have a name, to name is to become. In the future, we will only have tongues, no body. We will weave, eat, preserve the tongues in hopes of preserving our languages. What does it mean to look for blue? Is it about prescience, a tapping into the possible, the not yet named or seen? If blue is the horizon of colors, will it appear infinitely? The blue screen is not the final frontier. Please tell me it is not the final frontier. <laughs> the Centauria sinaeus cornflower or maelstrom provides an edible blue dye used for making sugar. When used to dye fabric, the dye is not permanent. Ingested, it is healing against inflammation. We eat color to heal. Color is sacred because it takes time to grind, pull, dissolve, mix, seal. Language is sacred. How many tongues can you pull out in a day? I will pay you. Blue is thought to be synthetic. Invented. Is language the same? Sometimes it cannot be seen, but needs a bright light to be visible. Blue invites the light in. The light whisks away the unwanted, the murky. A blueprint is a map exposed to light. The guide is formed by markings and lines. We read it, we believe it. We believe it will come into being. We believe it will be built. Marking a paper with blue pencils, 
makes it impossible to copy. Prints that have been faded due to prolonged exposure to light can be restored by simply storing them in a dark environment. I am caught in the algae. Looking for blue is a kind of search. Here's what I like about islands. Their boundaries are demarcated by water, and so we have to think about the sky and the invisible floor. The dividing lines are drawings. It's hard to keep enough objects afloat to make a line, so we draw them in ink or pencil. An island insists on change. The sand and the shore are in constant flux. Will salt preserve us? So that's that. <laughs> um, and just to give you a sense of some of these references, um, the reference to the tongue being removed is actually a process that happens when you're drying cod. <laughs> And uh, what I discovered is that um, it's usually teenagers that are hired to remove the tongue of the cod as a uh, summertime job <laughs> um, in those islands. And I loved the idea that part of coming of age was having to remove someone else's tongue or another being species tongue. Um, so. So, I'm just going to read one more little piece. Um, Anna um, wrote a piece that's about process. <laughs> and in response, um, I decided to write a new piece that is about process. Um, part of the beauty and intensity of a manuscript um, are the final moments. And um, I've been holding on, and I can, I've been holding on to this manuscript <laughs> and not letting it go, um, in part because I haven't been able to find the right images. And so I think, so this little piece is actually about what is a possible image when you're thinking about poetic work. Um, and to give you a sense of the manuscript, um, the, the work is about um, loss and longing, and it's really centered around the city of Beirut. Um, but it's, uh, it's housed there, um, but it kind of moves beyond it. So that's why um, some of these questions. So this is called Possible Images, an essay. Um, I'm going to begin with a quote from Ital Adnan. We can admit that memory resurrects the dead, but these remain within their world, not ours. The universe covers the whole of warm blanket. The eclipse was way more magnificent than I had imagined. The war was not the war, but a series of events, events, episodes, moments, happenings. The newspaper articles are archived and documented in microfiche, cardboard paper boxes, and obscure sites, or most likely not. In 2006, a year after his death by car bomb, I went to the apartment building where Samir Kassir lived. 
because it was near my grandmother's apartment in the same building as my mother's close friend. She rang the door buzzer and waited for her to come down and meet us. I looked up at the bright blue sky and thought about Samir's balcony. Did he go outside to smoke? Did his daughters and wife still live in the same apartment? In his last published work, an article for En Nahar, Samir wrote that if there was to be a spring, and he was talking about the Arab Spring, we must act as citizens and not as subjects. Kassir was a public intellectual, what we now call pundits. He was before Twitter. Here's the drawing of a square I drew in my book. I later found out that they built and named a square, which is really more of a rectangle, in his honor in downtown. I haven't been there, but have seen numerous photos. Actually, I might have been there, but forgot and didn't notice that it was meant to be. Just like Etel Adnan, Samir Kassir also held a degree in philosophy. This is what it's like to live far away. You spend all your time finding connections. For many years, my archiving practice consisted of researching and printing out the weather in Los Angeles and in Beirut at the same time on the same day. I wanted to know the degree of difference, the way the sun beat down on limestone harsher than on cement. What if both cities were in simultaneous drought? Somewhere between 1998 and 2004, Walid Rad started making images where he recorded the bullet holes on buildings with colored dots. He placed them on a series of black and white photographs. The colors of the dots corresponded to the colors of the bullet tips and in return, the manufacturing countries that marked their cartridges. In 2007, I took a bunch of brightly colored sugar confetti for cakes and poured it on a printed photograph of ruins of downtown Beirut. I wanted to say that we're still really good at celebrating and getting through. I hated ruin porn and the person who won a photo award for the image of those ruins, even though I'm sure He's a pretty nice guy. <laughs> Walid and I met in 2005 in California, and we talked about how far away we felt, how so many people we knew were on the streets calling for the removal, the end of the Syrian occupation of Lebanon. Now, more Syrians than ever live in Lebanon as refugees. War is a series of continuous events. War is a series of linkages. Samir Kassir died a few weeks after Walid and I met. He was in his car, parked outside the building where he lived. Foucault suggested that thought is an event, particularly his own. Though it is not a thing or an object outside of context. What if an event is a body and not an object? How can it hold the moment differently? I made this work while I was drawing and building city cakes. They were paper and sugar and ink drawings scaled into eight layers 
the supposed number of times the city of Beirut has been rebuilt. Had I seen Walid's work and remembered it? Had I forgotten it as I was making my own? At the time, I regularly smoked Gaulois cigarettes on the small balcony of the residency I had outside of Paris. Across the street, the pub owner woke up late, although he had the keys to the church, and it was Sunday. I found a video clip online of Samir smoking between shooting a news clip. He's laughing at the cameraman, who's also his makeup artist, and he's directing someone to take the cigarette away so the smoke alarm doesn't come on. He asks the cameraman if the camera is waterproof, if it's ever been tested. Most artists I've met find monuments banal or excessive, unless they've been commissioned to make one. <laughs> if a monument is a square with water and trees, then I love it. In the description by the architects, there's a speculation of new buildings, emergings, space being built around the monument as a mark of its success the way it will continue to provide shade and what they term contemplation because of the water elements, despite growth. Growth is sometimes painful. Do you remember shedding and then acquiring new teeth? The growth follows the roots of the first set. You only get one chance at straight Braces free teeth. What a great voice she has. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Um, there are lots of great things, which I'll ask you about later. <laughs> uh, so Anna Mashavakis draws from poetry, narrative, philosophy, and documentary prose in writing that explores uncertainty, failure, power, and connection. Did you write that? No. Let's see. <laughs> Her recent books are They and We Will Get Into Trouble for This and the English translation of Bresson en Bresson. She's a longtime member of the publishing collective Ugly Duckling Press and a co-founder of Bushel, an art and community space in Delhi, New York. Her first novel, Eleanor or the Rejection of the Progress of Love, is forthcoming in 2018. Um, Anna is also one of my dearest friends and my editor. Um, so, I can't really imagine thinking seriously about how to live in this world without Anna being here to think about it, too. I can go through the usual ritual of trying to describe her work right now, but I warn you that the language of a person whose orientation in the universe is locked into your own cannot be accurately described. Anna and I share a place in this nothing is one way to describe what it's like to proceed together with another in time space. And that is what's at stake. What are we going to do at every moment? What are we going to say? Is what we say justifiable? 
not right or wrong, but not firing up hell, at least. I never thought I would see the making of a generation of writers who were my generation. I thought we were a generation of isolatos, but this is not true. One of Anna's powers is the ability to reveal this as a symptom of exhaustion or a sign of the times. She has the power to illuminate the common by way of care, by being sensitive and careful with the effects that each utterance leaves in its wake. She is alert to the consequences of speech. I don't think she believes in the poetic truisms that drive much of contemporary poetry, music, or cadence, and what have you. I think she cares about the violence the careless word can do, and so the orchestration of words is a beautiful thing, but not to hear oneself sing. Recall the typographical pains she takes in her last book, They and We Will Get Into Trouble For This, to separate each phrase from another, to stop the words running together long enough to breathe them out and then in again. She is a bookmaker, a person who works with type. So relations being central to her work, pain. Quote, I don't want to speak for anyone but myself, she writes in the capacity to be alone, a new work that examines the cost of the desire to be a mother, the cost of the desire to be a writer, what this life costs in shame or in doubt, the dubious nature of winning. It is, in fact, this simple. Not everything can or should be born. Thinking about this is a risk because it means you have to look at that which cannot be born and bear it. Let it pass through you, but at a distance, and make yourself see. Please welcome my friend, Anna Mashavakis. Thank you, Simone. This room is so full of people that I love. Um, and you not. Thank you. So beautiful. We, um, Yumna and I were so excited we were going to be reading together. And we're like, we're going to do something totally awesome and different. We're going to like do this thing, and it's not going to be like one person reads and the other person. <laughs> and then life interfered. And but but at least we exchanged some of our work ahead of time, and it had a conversation. And I'm so happy to have heard what that produced, and to be here with you. So thanks, everybody. Um, so when. Uh, so Simone asked me, do you want to come and read from your novel? And I was like, ooh, I guess I should figure out how to do that. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. So I'm not going <laughs> to read from that. But um, this summer I wrote a thing that was sort of about, about why that's hard for me. So I'm going to read that instead. Um, and it's called The Capacity to Be Alone. Can everybody hear? It's all good sound-wise. And this is an abridged version, and it's kind of in progress. And I never thought I would read it out loud, but I was sort of stuck, because I couldn't figure out how to read the other thing. <laughs> so thanks for bearing, being here for it. <laughs> I don't like novels. I love a few novels, and brought some of them with me. The Hour of the Star, Woman at Point Zero, Forever Valley, Maud Martha, Wittgenstein's Mistress. I also brought a few novels or novel-like books that I had not yet read but that I thought I might love. Sweet for Barbara Loden, Bon en Banlieue, An Apprenticeship or The Book of Delights. 
The rest of the reading I planned to do was directly or indirectly about shame. I first heard the term good enough mother in a conversation with a poet friend who was training to be a psychotherapist. This was years ago. I had just begun to feel what I think is meant by a maternal instinct, or at least to suspect that my desire to parent might be stronger than my fear of ruining my life. Good enough seemed possible, seemed right. I read about the difference between guilt and shame in an essay written about Odysseus by a literary critic long ago. I forget the argument, but I remember the difference, or the fact of there being a difference. Odysseus's palm tree made an appearance too, though that might have been in a different essay, one about nostalgia, or was it grief, possibly by someone else? In my novel, the main character, Eleanor, is a woman who does not want to be a mother. I sent a draft to a new friend, a writer I admired, who said she could relate. I thought of writing back to clarify, but I was ashamed. The family next door appeared two days ago, a woman and a man, two small children, and an older man, probably a grandfather. Everyone is very busy, coming and going to and from the car, bright clothing and little backpacks, ready for summer adventures, except the grandfather, who sits on the porch, softly playing the banjo. I think it's a banjo, though it may be a mandolin. A person may be in solitary confinement, writes Winnicott in The Capacity to Be Alone, published some time after he invented the good enough mother, and yet not be able to be alone. How greatly he must suffer is beyond imagination. Winnicott goes on to parse the sentence, I am alone, into a progression of existential maturation from I, acknowledgement of existence in space, to I am, acknowledgement of being alive, to I am alone an expression, paradoxically, of the certainty of eventual company, the knowledge that solitude isn't a permanent state. He rarely plays an entire song. He plays phrases or clauses in articulated sequence, a paratactic meander that, because it lacks an arc, could go on forever. I have never heard him sing. I am working through the final copy edits of my novel. My novel are not words that roll comfortably off my tongue. I am a novelist is not something I have ever wanted to say. I began writing the novel when a baby didn't come. Last night, I saw an artist give a talk at an exhibition opening. She showed tapestries she'd woven to mark traumatic events, instances of racialized police violence, her own hate-based attack. She said, I make this work when the pain is too much for my one body to metabolize so that the work can hold some of the pain, give it place in the world. Because I am white and the artist who makes the tapestries is black, because of differences in register and reach of the events we describe, I felt uncomfortable putting her pain in a paragraph with mine. My discomfort is not the point of her work. Still, it became a point of contact between us. A body has its limits. An excess of pain, grief, rage, even discomfort, doesn't metabolize itself. When I first heard the banjo from next door, I was annoyed. I have only 26 days here, which has to be long enough to fall apart and put myself back together again. Now, when the playing stops, I'm sad. One of the children smiled at me yesterday and offered me his ball. They often smile at me now, on the subway and on airplanes and in the street, sometimes for a very long time. Sometimes they get snatched away. This morning, I noticed that the father has left. Possibly he was never here. He may not exist. What is a story? What is a character? 
The novels I love have skeletal stories, characters built from small collections of words and facts, Maccabea in The Hour of the Star, the unnamed narrator in Forever Valley, The Speaker of Calamities, which I also brought with me and which is not a novel but describes a character still. About Maud Martha, we know more, but we are never forced by lavish description into the role of viewer. We never forget that, for us, she is made of language. Sometimes a character is a sentence and a story is a word. Put I am in front of a word and you have a sentence, but not all sentences stand in for events. When shame is present, the sentence might be, I am essentially bad, or I am essentially unworthy, or I am essentially wrong. Are these sentences events? Does that mean they have beginnings and ends? I am looking fruitlessly through the novels I brought for articulations of shame. This is the first time I've noticed their absence. It turns out my favorite novels tell the stories of women who refuse, usually under duress, to feel essentially bad, unworthy, or wrong. I began to observe how other people were raising their children. My opinions were strong, especially as I watched parents contort their desires for the sake of a child-centered life. I would catch myself. Of course, they know things I don't know. Sometimes my thoughts were less generous. How can they not see that they just need to let the child be? One of the habits of the good enough mother is to sometimes remain at a distance, available but not overly present. Over time, this trains the child to feel competent to move in the world, to assess the threat of her immediate environment for herself. Does this hold only for environments in which the threat is generally low? To be at a distant distance, present but not overly so, can also be a sign of an immature coping state, what the post-Kleinian analyst John Steiner has called psychic retreat. Trauma, anticipated or experienced, seems to link these two states. When Troy Davis was executed after the false news of a pardon, I texted a friend who improbably had come to have the president's ear. She texted back about the arc of history bending toward justice. One of Indira Allegra's tapestries is of Troy Davis's image, faint but indelible, woven tightly in what looks like gold lame and hung high on the wall from a dowel like an unspooled scroll. I hover at the edge of the communal dinners, unsure where to sit, the public school cafeteria, a commonplace trauma. Some of my friends' kids are in middle school now, high school. The child I chose not to have would be 19 and French, half French. He visits me, a tall young man with wild hair, smiling, smoking a cigarette. There were two of us involved in this failed endeavor. I don't know how to account for the second person's experience. I don't want to speak for anyone but myself. I go for walks. All of the paths ultimately connect to form a network of loops. You rarely have to retrace your steps. I walk when I've come to a problem in the edit that I can't solve by sitting at a desk. The whole novel is a problem. I walk for hours and return against my will when a loop closes. Participation is the title of what I thought would be my next book after the novel about Eleanor. To participate, you can't be in psychic retreat. That the novel I've finished without intending to write a novel or become a novelist will soon be released is a nightmare. How strong they must be, those people who open their imaginations for anyone to see. I was told that it wasn't my fault and that it was my fault, that I was too old and that I still had time, that I should trust the doctors and that I should stay away from the doctors. I was told to rely on my instincts, which I did when I was able to identify them. I was told there are other ways to build a family, which I knew, but this is where the fact of the second person complicated things. 
I was told what will be yours will be yours. Emerging from psychic retreat means first abandoning established coping strategies, perceived invisibility, melancholia, narcissistic self-aggrandizement, or its inverse, dramatic self-annihilation, then moving through a period of depression, mourning, and finally accepting both the loss of omnipotence over the object and the loss of the object itself. This emergence is fraught with the fact of being seen and accompanied by experiences of acute discomfort the subject may describe as feeling embarrassed, thin-skinned, self-conscious, sensitive, vulnerable, disconcerted, awkward, blushing, ignominious, improper, indecent, unchaste, demeaned, ashamed, belittled, slandered, debased, defiled, disfigured, contemptible, mortified, scorned, worthless, and humiliated. In other words, the subject will necessarily feel exposed. In France, a country that claims a separation of church and state, a woman who wishes to get an abortion is required to wait for two weeks, receive government-issued counseling, and submit to a prenatal ultrasound in which the health of the embryo or fetus is assessed and communicated in detail. On her way out of the consultation, she is handed a printout of the ultrasound, which shows in grainy black and white a mass of cells in the shape of a baby. It is 1998, February. Impossible not to feel self-indulgent, not to try to rationalize the time spent rehashing all this. Getting out from under shame means admitting and accepting your flaws. I want to live. Last night there was a sighting of a man in the woods, frozen like a deer in the beam of a headlamp. I am convinced it was the grandfather out late to absorb energy from the moon, like the crystals my former housemate would place out back in the dirt on bright nights. I am looking for a shame-neutralizing ritual that doesn't include writing a list or a letter and burning it. For one thing, I don't have access here to matches. In my novel, there's a solstice bonfire and a mushroom trip after which Eleanor falls apart. In the hour of the star, Maccabea visits Madame Carlotta, who reads her cards for a price. Last week on the solstice, I dealt my old tarot deck into the shape of a Celtic cross, and each morning I learn something from it, what's below me what's behind me. In Gwendolyn Brooks's novel, the birth scene happens on page 96. It's witnessed by Belva Brown, who proudly survives it. Now, isn't that nice, thought Maud Martha. Here I've had the baby, and she thinks I should praise her for having stood up there and looked on. Was it, she suddenly wondered, as hard to watch suffering as it was to bear it? There's a hostel next door whose inhabitants change daily. A weathered wooden staircase descends from it to the service road. At the bottom of the stairs for the last six nights, a small plastic water bottle has stood erect, refusing to topple even in the strong winds. Dented and dirty and filled with a yellow liquid, could it be anything other than urine? If it were drinkable, somebody would have drunk it by now. On the way to dinner, I walked by the bottle again. An unfamiliar man, presumably a guest at the hostel, stood at the top of the stairs gnawing on a giant fruit, papaya or mango. He averted his eyes as I passed, thick yellow liquid spilling through his fingers and onto his feet. What do we mean when we say someone is shameless? What is the recommended quantity of shame? My novel is divided into three sections, spring, summer, fall. Fall is a trial. But what exactly is on trial? I'm thinking about the artists last week who introduced their work to an audience without apology. Shame restages every action in a court of law. It was more than the absence of apology. It was the presence of delight. 
I just remembered that Aaron Coonan, whose collection of notebooks I once admiringly imitated, also wrote a book about shame. Is it inevitable that my response to this recollection is to feel ashamed? <laughs> Participation, which exists in a germinal draft, places a female protagonist in an unnamed desert borderlands, a prisoner in a work camp for one, surveilled in her solitude by a device that may once have been a smartphone, but that has been reduced to the purpose of state control. Her task is to plant saplings of eucalyptus, the world's largest, most adaptable weed, along the border with such density that they will in a few years form a wall. Memories of language and human touch visit her in shards, like being stabbed. In the desert, animal and plant life abound. She begins by necessity to identify with both. Expecting to dream about Maccabea, instead I dream of a spider in my underwear when I took it off to pee. Had it crawled out of me? It looked neither dead nor alive, but at peace, I felt close to it, as if we were intimates. The other day, a spider hung from the bathroom ceiling, very much alive. Someone identified it with confidence as a black widow. Between these events, I received a text from a friend, another poet psychoanalyst, who says she dreamt of a tall young man with wild hair who wanted to sleep with me. She said we both seemed giddy at the prospect. In the syndrome known as Cotard's delusion, the patient believes that her body, in whole or in part, has disappeared, phantom limb in reverse. She might believe she is physically dead and claim to be able to smell her own putrefying flesh. In Winnicott's formulation, I think this would translate to a truncated sentence, am alone, before the capacity to be alone must first come the capacity to I. I spoke to the grandfather at last. It's a mandolin. Some writers say their books are their children, but what of the writers who have both books and children? It seems impossible, but last night I dreamt for the first time about giving birth. Maccabea is not devoid of feelings of shame. I was wrong. She's never seen herself naked because she's ashamed. And yet, she was sensual too sensual, or sensuality misplaced, her boyfriend Olimpico leaves her for her coworker Gloria, who from her hips you could tell was made for childbearing, while Maccabea seemed to have in herself her own end. I wonder if in Clarice Lispector's writing language, Brazilian Portuguese, the word end contains the double meaning it has in English. I consult an earlier translation of the book. Maccabea, by comparison, had all the signs of her own unmistakable doom. I know because I translate that words like doom are not words that get dropped from the original in the course of translation. They are words that certain translators succumb to the temptation to add. To have within oneself one's own end. To translate childlessness as the capacity to be alone. I've been instructed by the publishers to change my title, Too Many Prepositions. Is this what novelists do? Monitor their titles for parts of speech? What is the recommended ratio of prepositions to everything else? I keep a running list of alternate titles in my notebook, lineated like a poem. Labrador, if you couldn't be, the particular referent, the space of a human being, the thing that had happened, view of the container, the bodies of other people, Calculations from the mean lifetime, her contribution to the fire, all things turn to light. The star, the entering, the idea of progress, those flashes before winter, a way of being with. I reject them all. I consider her unmistakable doom. Some of the chapter titles in Maud Martha. 
Description of Mad Martha, Mad Martha and New York. The young couple at home, Mad Martha spares the mouse. A birth, tradition and Mad Martha, mother comes to call. If the book is my child, why am I trying so hard to author it? So what if it wants to grow up to be a novel? What would it take for me to let my book baby be? Another artist shows a complicated film before a large and attentive audience. In the Q&A, she is asked how she came to terms with depicting in a section of the film the forced removal of the Cherokee people from what is now Illinois, when it is not her pain, she's not Cherokee, not Native American, when it is not her story to tell. At various moments in the last year, I've found myself saying I need to mourn for my lost mother self, saying it as if I know what mourning means. A friend's sister named her child after their dead father without warming the family, warning the family. My friend's partner joked about getting the baby a onesie with trigger warning printed on its chest. The family next door has left, the children have left, the grandfather and mandolin have left, but the woman, the mother, remains. Last night at Show and Tell, she presented a video she made as part of a project about integrating motherhood into her art practice. Tears fell in sheets down my face and neck in the darkened room. Opening a journal at random at the shared kitchen table, I read a review, read a review of a book about marriage that contains the line, people who like to tell secrets get itchy in monogamy. I want to ask the reviewer, what is a secret? The tarot, echoing other esoteric systems, proposes that most of us keep our deepest selves secret, caving to or colluding with the dictates of the outside world. Is shame stronger in those of us who don't want to keep secrets, but who live among others who don't really want to know? There are times when to watch suffering is the same thing as to bear it. When I refer to the second person as the second person, I don't mean to reduce his humanity to an abstraction. I mean to acknowledge the way grief separates, even when its catalyst is shared. To say the couple grieved, or the family grieved, or the nation grieved is to speak metaphorically. I mean to respect, with tenderness and the perspective of love, the second person's right to feel how he needs to feel. The paths that diverge and loop back in multifold and unexpected ways are like a dream, literally a dream I've had since I was a child. Literally is not what I mean though the word is often misused in this way. Do I mean an actual dream? Actual is also a false friend in the relationship between the two languages I know best. Does actual mean real or does it mean current? That the paths are a current dream feels real. I walk them, my child just out of view up ahead. The child turns and time stops, literally stops. It isn't only my child who walks with me. The paths themselves are scars on Miwok land. I am often solitary when I trace them, but I am not alone. I compromised with the publishers on the title of my novel. It was the kind of compromise that involves adding one thing one party wants to one thing the other party wants and ending up with something different which neither party wanted or expected to want, but which is almost satisfying to both. Last night, a new mother, new to me, new to this place, was at dinner with her child who was demanding her attention. At some point, the child turned its attention to me allowing the mother a moment of peace in which to eat her tacos. These interactions, which happen frequently, don't feel to me like the kind of compromise I made with my publishers about my title. They feel like a different kind of compromise, like being crushed by your own hand. I want to be clear that by placing disparate things in proximity to one another, 
either in the same paragraph or in paragraphs separated by numerals or by other paragraphs. I do not mean to suggest that these things are comparable, let alone equivalent. I do not mean to propose an equation of pain, suffering, compromise, or anything else. I may mean to acknowledge that despite differences in kind and of scale, and sometimes because of them, events of pain, suffering, and compromise in the experience of individuals and of peoples do in fact occur in proximity to one another, sometimes in the same sentence. Below a national park sign for the Miwok Trail, a stretch of coarse gravel has given way to fine sand, so distinct in texture it seems to have come from somewhere else. There are sentences we, collectively and individually, are still learning how to read. Bon en banlieue is in part a book drawn in the smoke from an abandoned novel, burnt deliberately for fuel. It destroys me, literally. Desire and shame find each other and together form the shape of a new book in grainy black and white. I paste its image in my notebook like 19 years ago. When the other ways also fail, a new shame is born, the shame that burns to infect a priori all the other other ways. Thinking about the concept of shame has a distancing effect on the feeling of shame. This wouldn't be the first time I've thought of the act of defining as an act of dominance. This is not an original thought. If I can define my shame, will it lose its hold on me? In the language of polyamory, the word primary defines itself, but also, by implication, its mirror, defending its other ways, like a salve. Shame, a definition. The tipping from a tentative not knowing to a certain knowledge of the worst. Not even a tipping, a coming home. Shame claims for itself the deepest truth. To be defined by shame, my secret self is an imposter. What's above me, the hermit, a lantern shining down and in, to defy the definition from below when the definition is wrong. But naming is also necessary. There are people in these paragraphs I haven't yet named, haven't yet asked if they agree to be here together in proximity. In some cases, Gwendolyn, Clarice, there is no asking, only a shining down and in. I've had more than one mother. The new title, The One Reached by Compromise, contains Eleanor's name. It's growing on me. I watch as the novel grows into it. Rabbits, paintbrushes, and a bobcat on the loop today. To put oneself back together again is a metaphor. It misleads. The falling apart actually happens. The second part isn't a reassembling, though. The second part has to be the birth of something new. Capacity is also a false friend to itself. How can a word mean talent or ability while also tracing the limits of what a vessel can hold, what a body can metabolize, what a single person can take? Standing at a distance here as traces and also as the promise of eventual company, some names, Amina Kane, Nawal Sadawi, Marie Rene, David Markson, Nathalie Leger, Benjamin Moser, Banu Kapil, Rene Gladman, Carol Pagel, Kazem Ali, Zhenya Chirovskaya, Lenka Clayton, Deborah Stratman, Trevor Wilson, Yasmin Alwan, Anne Lauterbach, Mark, Yoko, Ellen L'Esperance. With the deadline a week away, I finished the edits. Today is July 4th. It's overcast. Ghosts fall like silver fireworks from a silver sky. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thank you.
thanks so much for being here. And next week is dog right. So thanks, Anna. Thanks, Yumna. Good night.